my name is Hayley Robbins and welcome to the next episode in the Positive Partnerships podcast series, where we bring you real life stories from around Australia about life on the autism spectrum by those that know best. Today, we will be meeting Kirsty Russell from Newcastle in New South Wales, who is a mother of three children, two of which are on the autism spectrum. Kirsty's eldest son, Xander, also has the genetic condition albinism. Kirsty has introduced some practical solutions on how to work in partnership with her children's schools and teaches us that you can be positive and you can be proactive and no matter what the circumstances are, you can have a fulfilling life. My son Xander will be 13 very soon. Um, he is he's an amazing kid. I'm really proud of him. Um, he has, in addition to his autism diagnosis, he also has an albinism diagnosis, which means he has no pigmentation in his hair, skin and eyes, um, which has led to a vision impairment. So he has a vision impairment on top of the autism. Um, but none of that has ever, has ever stopped him. Um, he's a gifted writer. Um, he writes a journal every night, um, which is very funny to read. So one day I'd love to be able to collate all those and, and put them together. Um, he's intensely interested and talented in music, um, loves history, um, loves um, the solar system, science, just, yeah, just, you know, reads up where other kids have um, a room full of toys. He has a room full of facts books and, um, yeah, and, and non-fiction books. So he's just, he is a very funny and, um, yeah, just a talented kid. Love him. He had issues in as far as his vision, which was picked up around six weeks of age, and then he received his albinism diagnosis, which is a genetic condition um, at the age of 11 weeks. Um, so to be told at that stage that your child will probably never drive, that's actually what what made me cry and, and what actually hit me that time. So I thought, he's a boy and he's going to want to drive a car. Um, so I suppose in that sense we became special needs parents quite early on. So we didn't know any different. Um, he was our first child. Um and so from the start, we had to consider, you know, he's, you know, outsides, you know, skin sensitivity, he has no pigmentation or no melanin, so he'll never tans, gets burned easily. Um, and obviously the vision, the vision issues. And a lot of that was, you know, we, we went into, you know, occupational therapy and speech therapy and things for its vision. So we had a lot of early intervention mm. from the start. Um, so I suppose in that sense, we were lucky because, um, when it came time, you know, we realised there was something else going on in the picture. We sort of were already in that world, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it was partly he was um, at another organisation for his vision and they were thinking that there might be something a little bit more going on in the background there. Um, he would do things like um, he was addicted to the Foxtel information channel. Um, it was just the blue screen and I think way back then um, oh, it was a – Mike Hamilton or someone like that was on there and he'd talk and, and Xander would sit there for hours and just watch this blue screen and, and then spout all this stuff back. So he had echolalia. We thought he was really gifted, <laughs> and so you know, and, and he is, but um, we really thought, wow, how is this three-year-old coming out with all of this stuff? He could recognise even with his vision impairment, you know, the Foxtel information channels, he could read them at the age of sort of, you know, before two. Um, so there was all this stuff happening and I suppose it took a while because of his vision, um, he had to miss certain milestones that he would normally meet, um, that normally vision impaired kids would meet for us to really realise and to go, okay, it's probably autism or probably something else here. So going through that process was, um, 
was difficult and, and really difficult for us because we sort of suspected for a little while that I was actually paralysed. I couldn't do anything immediately because I couldn't get over the fact that he might actually have a second diagnosis on top of the first. That was, I, I just couldn't see how fair that was. And yeah, we just, we really struggled initially to sort of, to realise there was a problem and then to push through it because then we're having to work across two different sort of disability areas, I guess. And that was really difficult as well. Because I suppose when you, even things like occupational therapy, um, they couldn't even work out half the time if some of his behaviours or some of his reactions to things were because of his vision or because of his autism. And so, you know, and that's been sort of a a, a sort of a common theme over the years is trying to work out what is actually driving some of his behaviour. So that that happened um, and started way back then. But um, we went to the paediatrician, he somewhat conveniently had a massive meltdown in there um, because there was a picture, a sheet um, on the bed and it had um, um, roads and and railways on it and he was really fascinated by that and he couldn't understand why he couldn't get on it and drive and and stuff. And so that helped us and that pretty much cut through everything and she said, yes, it's autism. And then from then, you know, we then had to make that decision about how do we deal with both diagnoses sort of going forward. He had been in childcare from an early age, which is probably one of the best things that, that we did. So he, he sort of early on sort of um, was used to, to that. He, he had um, extra support and back then it was ISS funding or something. So he, he, had, um, he had funding there for an aid. Um, but at that point in time, he was going to a vision-impaired uh, vision preschool. And we had to make the decision. It was a very, very difficult decision to then switch him over to sort of more an autism setting because we realised he only had a year or so before he was supposed to start school. We needed to to address those those issues. So that was a really difficult thing to do. And and along the way, we've had to become experts in both areas because obviously um, educators in the autism sector aren't that familiar with vision impairment and vision in and educators in the vision impaired sector aren't always on top of autism. So we've sort of had to be a conduit in both ways. So yeah. He eventually went mainstream. He started off um in, in aspect. He started off in a um a base school and then a satellite class. That was great. It was it it allowed us and it taught us what to do and what we could do as parents. So it introduced us into IEPs. We had no idea what they were before then. And so um, we were guided through the process and what we couldn't, couldn't, you know, the input that we had into them and, and what we could ask for. Um, we learned about support. So he learned way back then and he still uses it now. Dried pasta calms him down. You know, he chews on it. Um, wouldn't have known that if we hadn't gone to aspect. So for us in those in that first year after the diagnosis aspect really helped us out because it gave us that introduction and understanding of autism and it helped us understand his behaviours and what was driving them. Um, so that gave him a really good um, stepping point and, and, you know, process to follow so that then when he moved to, to school proper, to mainstream, we could then, you know, help him. And he was seven, so he started in year two. So I think he's, he turned eight early in that year, so... Yeah, so we went across um, and, you know, it was – I had a month off work um, to, to support him, but then five weeks in, the week I went back to work, he ended up getting suspended. So that was um, – you know, you put all the preparation in place and it doesn't always come off, but that was actually probably a good thing because we all came together and were able to to see what more we could put in place. So we put a communication book in and regular meetings and, you know, they took more seriously – I suppose some of the you know the, the needs that he that he has. 
He was suspended. He, he was stressed, I think, because I'd gone back to work. So he knew that I wasn't, I was half an hour away, not sort of five minutes away. Um, so he had expressed some, some stress that week. Um, I'd already been given a, a phone call, I think, a couple of days before saying, oh, you know, he's exhibiting these behaviours, you know, more like a, a warning of suspension. So I knew that things were a little bit, just because he was not um, following the rules and he was lashing out at people, basically. But the suspension came about um, because an inexperienced aide was trying to, to help him and he basically hit her and in the Department of Education. Normally that's a, an automatic suspension. That's sort of how it was explained to us at the time. And we were devastated. We we were disappointed because we thought, okay, we've gone through this process with the school. They know his issues. Why do they still suspend him when it's basically what he wants? He doesn't want to go to school. You know, that's the, the suspension doesn't often work. Um, but I did understand and they, they, you know, they went through and showed us the discipline policy um, but we're able to move forward and work on that and that's the thing. We had to see it, okay, how can we move forward from this? Because I could have easily pulled him out and taken him back to Aspect after that. I was that devastated, I guess, that all the work we'd put in in the transition process still resulted in him, you know, being suspended and, and in my mind it was unfair and he wasn't being understood. Well, the suspension was good in a few ways because... <sighs> My son is, is I suppose, high-functioning, um, and so he's quite intelligent. And a lot of people seem to assume that he, you know, can follow instructions and doesn't need an, the same sort of supports that other, you know, that, that kids on the spectrum need. So it basically saw they were able to see, okay, he, he does need these assistance. So he got himself, they, they gave him visuals, they gave him a communication book, which was important for me as a parent to be able to... Um, to communicate, let them know if he's had a bad morning or they could tell me, you know, what his mood had been that day. Um, but I think most importantly, he was brought into the meeting um, at the end, like the return to school meeting. And, you know, the, the principal talked to him quite um, well. She was an ex-special needs teacher, so she just, she was great. She she told me when, when it happened, she didn't want to suspend him, she had to. Do you know what I mean? So she was sort of on our side in that respect and that helped. But she she basically talked to him sort of, and didn't ignore him, didn't sort of um, think that he, his input wasn't valuable. And I think that got through to him more than anything else did. He didn't he didn't want to be suspended anymore. He knew it was a punishment. So for him, it wasn't, oh, wow, I get rewarded by, by getting to stay at home. He knew he was missing out. He knew it wasn't, you know, what he should be aiming for. And, and yeah, he's never been suspended since. Socially, um, Considering that he looks different and he acts different with his albinism and his autism, he has actually never been bullied and he's always had some sort of friend network. It's his personality, he's got an amazing personality. And um, and I think that's just, and he's just, he just comes out with the most sort of off the wall things. And I think the other kids just think, wow, you know, some of them, I, I help out at the school sometimes and some of them would say, gosh, Sanders smart or, you know, this is what he came out with today. And so I think they just, they were basically in awe or at least, you know, they, they would just go, wow, this kid is, you know, a bit different. So it never occurred to them to, to bully him, which I, which is amazing. And I'm waiting for it in high school though. Um, but he's got a, a, a core group of kids who are also on the spectrum um, and they just get each other. And I love their play dates. He's got a friend who comes over and they just sit on the bed together with their each with an iPad and they, they'll show each other a video occasionally. But often it's just for them, it's enough to be sitting next to each other in the same room, you know, and so I've learned to appreciate that that's the way that, you know, that they enjoy it. And it's, you know, he's never going to have or he's never going to appear to have the same sort of relationships or friendships as, as you know, 
kids would normally be expected to, but that is okay because it satisfies him, mm. you know, and makes him happy. Um, we decided to apply for a, a selective high school because of his, he is quite intelligent. Um, and then I had to fight to get him equitable access to that. And that was another, that's another massive story. But essentially, I really had to fight, yeah, for, for, um, for him to be able to, you know, sit in a room and to do similar things to what he did with NAPLAN because he's always been able to do his NAPLAN electronically because of his vision. Um, but the, the testing there was just pen and paper and stuff. So it was just, it's just getting him the, the access he needs. Um, and then it was a matter of, you know, going along to all the days that the high school had, getting him into the supported transition process um, where he had five two-hour visits to the school um, you know, going up and, and introducing myself and talking to the high school. He did a speech up there about albinism. So he actually talked to the whole school populace, which I thought would be, which we wanted to, to give him an idea of introducing himself to the school and the school seeing him as, you know, just as another kid who, yeah. So we tried to do a few things outside the box, I guess, to, to introduce him to the school. So it wasn't as um, traumatic, I suppose, when he started there. The first few weeks leading up to it were, yeah, horrible, obviously, with the anxiety. Um, the first day he was he was upset um, going in there, but he stayed, which was exciting. Um, and so far, so good. He's been, um, he likes his maths teacher, which is good. Apparently, he's a bit of a character. He's actually doing his maths homework, which is pretty amazing because maths is not his preferred subject. He's more an English history sort of boy. Um but, yeah, so far, so good. You know, he, he is stressed. He gets a stress rash um, and he's got that. He's had that for five weeks, so we're trying to sort of do what we can do. So that's an obvious physical sign. He's He is, you know, lashing out at home in the afternoons because he's holding it. He's trying to do everything he can to hold it together at school. Um, but, you know, the teachers, it's one of those things I haven't been communicated with by any of them for any bad reason, which is great. And he even got three little awards in the first few weeks to, you know, in recognition of the effort he's putting in and, and how well he's going. So, so far so good. But I know with past experience too, the minute you sort of let your breath out a bit, something might happen. So I'm sort of still, you know, we're still trying to give him the support he needs and, you know, we won't pull back on any of that. But it's cautiously optimistic at the moment. We have tried to simplify. Um, the only thing he does is fortnightly he does psychology. Um, and he does speech now at high school, so someone comes in and does that with him, which is great. And we've decided to give OT, you know, and other therapies a bit of a break. I'd love to get him into something that wasn't therapy-related. I'd love to get into music lessons, um, but we talked to him about that, and we all decided that that's just not something for the first term. You know, we want to give him, and it might be something he doesn't do till the second half of the year. But, yeah, we have tried to to minimise that what we can. However, I do have two other kids and so they have stuff on. So that's been a a big balancing act is trying to, to be fair to everybody, I mm. guess, in balancing all that out. So that brings us to Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, she, was, she ended up being diagnosed when she was six, but when she was around four years old, we realised she had issues with her um, with language. Um, it was difficult to understand her and she had different words she'd use for things and so um, we ended up getting her hearing checked. You know, I suppose a lot of us have that. We check all the other issues off the list. And she ended up having a hearing loss um, due to glue ear. So she had grommet surgery and that resolved that. And then obviously she had some follow-up um, speech therapy. 
um, to get back on track again. But it was through the speech therapy they were starting to notice some some little issues with sort of her receptive and her expressive language that were more in line, sort of that weren't sort of accounted for by the vision by the hearing loss. And um, then she started school, and it was really the start of school where we really saw a lot of we really saw her struggle at. at preschool she there was always signs there she never had set friends she sort of would flurry about do her own thing um but it wasn't until she got to to actual mainstream kindergarten that you know she was having separation anxiety for the first three terms of the year she had to be pulled off me by an aide which is horrible and you know I, I know it's a it's sort of shared by by many people out there but it's just it's a horrible situation to be in to see your child unhappy she would hide under the desk when she felt that she was being um you know criticized she couldn't handle any sort of criticism um but the biggest issue was when she actually tore up someone else's work in class and basically she just had a complete meltdown and said to them you know she wanted to hurt them and that really um that's not our daughter at all and we've just gone this is just what is going on here um so the teacher said to us, look, I think there might be, you know, it might be the spectrum we're looking at. And because, and I suppose we felt so guilty, she did eventually get the diagnosis of Asperger's. And we were so guilty because obviously we already had a son on the spectrum, but she presented so completely differently. And to know, we didn't have any suspicion, you know, until well after he was diagnosed, the age he was diagnosed. So it was, we felt guilty and like failures in a way for not picking this up earlier and helping her. But, um, you know, so but but on the other hand, we're very lucky she was picked up early for a girl. You know, for for girls, she's um even the psychologist at the time said that you're very lucky that this was, you know, picked up as early as it was. So we've been able to put things in place to help her, but she's socially she struggled a lot more than than Xander has, mm. and that's really hard because she she seeks those social relationships where Xander's quite happy. He could be happy being alone as well. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't sort of need that social interaction unless he chooses to engage in it where with Charlotte she yeah she wants to be with people she loves it she was sitting by herself sort of in the classroom like not by herself but say at the end of a table so her issue was she can't cope with people being close to her um from a sensory point of view so giving her her own space so she didn't have to you know interact with people as much helped her just kept her calm she has headphones so we did the sensory stuff she gets um she has issues with too much noise in the classroom um, we allowed her that space to go out. So she often goes on errands just to get that space in the classroom, you know, and then can come back in. Um, it's just having that understanding. And I suppose what I've worked on more with the school has been more social things for her. So this year she's actually a library monitor, so she has a role, which is great. She goes and helps in the library, um, which is really important because she lost a lot of her friends. She has a similar social group to her brother and they went off to high school this year, so she's been left alone basically um she's got friends she's got girls that she might talk to and and boys that she plays handball with and things but none of them are you know like dependable you know what I mean like she she doesn't have that same um relationship with them as she had with the others so having a focus like being library monitor and having responsibilities is sort of what we've been trying to do from a social perspective to just to give her um I suppose a direction and a focus you know, um, until we can sort of hopefully help her, um, you know, create some more, some more friendships. I would say first off, be you know completely respectful with the school. There's um, you know cases, and there's been times where I've been ropeable and I've wanted to lash out and I've wanted to, you know, 
be justifiably angry with the situation I'm in, but that I know for a fact that doesn't achieve anything. So just being polite and, and, and respectful, I think is a good start. Um, just being honest. So making, taking time to cultivate relationships before issues happen. So if you're going to transition to a school, you know, line up meetings with the principal, the learning support team, you know, the office people, just get to know everybody because everyone has their own role and you get to know eventually who, who you should approach sort of in what situation. Um, and I think being involved with the school, so um, where you can and it can be difficult, um, but, uh, and it took, took me a few years to be able to do this fully, but I now sort of volunteer at the school and things. Um, I think showing genuine interest and genuine um, wanting to be in a genuine partnership with the school really helps as well. And if you can show that and you can act in, you know, and you, you show them good faith, um, you know, of course I could be naive, but that's always worked for me. You know what I mean? I think being upfront and honest, trying to um, bring up issues before they become huge ones. So just having informal talks. I'm lucky we've got a small school so I can sort of go in, like I did this morning, to talk about my daughter who who is unhappy at the moment with not having a lot of um, friends. I was able to sort of have a chat and I said, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. But that's because we've set up, you know, this, this process and I suppose this relationship where we can talk very easily um, before issues become out of hand. Yeah. Um, I went to a positive partnerships workshop last year um, here in Newcastle and it was um, it was a really good day because, I mean, I've been an autism parent now for, well, could be 13 years because I, I believe kids, you know, they're, they're born with the condition. Um, so for me, I took a lot out of it when I could have easily gone, I don't, I just don't need this because I, I know everything I'm doing. But because I wanted to go... Um, to help with the transition for my son to high school, I got a lot out of that. And the day, you know, you, you come away with all this information, um, with good advice, it was the practical side of it that I got out the most. You I mean, I actually went from that session and made a talk and made a call to talk to the school because prior to that I'd been relying a lot on the primary school to sort of do a lot of that transition process. Um, but going to that session, realised, no, I, I can, and, and I'm a pretty good advocate myself anyway. But that sort of said, okay, you, it, it told me that, yep, you can actually go and, and talk to the high school on your own terms and, you know, talk about Xander as a complete person, not just diagnostic criteria or not just sort of all these reports, you know, explain who he really is. And that, that really did help me. So, and and the other thing that the Positive Partnerships Workshop did for me is to put me in touch with some other families who were going through the same. So the best thing is to know you're not alone in all of this because sometimes it can feel so so isolating. But um, I must say that the partnerships, and we've got a, an ongoing Facebook group from that as well. So we've kept going and, and um, yeah, it's good to know that that's a support network there. I write um, a blog called My Home Truths and I started that off back in 2011 so it's been six years now but mainly initially it was to write because I was going back to work after having my third child and so I needed a place to process my thoughts and feelings and but as it turned out as I wrote more about my son's journey and the challenges we had that seemed to resonate more with people and it helped me um, because what I've realized is I needed I was missing writing in my life I wrote a lot when I was younger and then you go to work and then you do other things and I'd write a lot at work but I never did sort of creative writing or writing just for me. And it's been such a, a fulfilling thing for me to do because um, originally, and it's always been for me, but the secondary part of it has been in the last, say, five years or more, actually connecting with others and having them 
you know, come back and say, oh, look, you know, I, I got something out of your article. This is what I'm facing too. And so the last couple of years since I left my employment, I've been concentrating on writing more to help others. So writing, you know, about, you know, so I've talked about it, what we've done to to um, transition to high school. You know, I've talked about how I'm going as, as a person, as a parent. And what I'm hoping with the blog is to reach other special needs parents because I talk both albinism and autism um, and to get people to see that you can be proactive and you can be positive. You, you don't lose the reality of your situation. Things aren't always rosy and I, I never gloss over that either. But what I'm hoping is it will help people see it as a more complete picture, you know, of an existence. It's not just it's, – it, it can be a fulfilling life. It doesn't just have to be you survive and, and go from one day to the next. Ava's six and she's just started year one, so she's loving it. Um, and she's just the little social butterfly. She is independent. She is um, imaginative. Um, yeah, she's so different to a brother and sister. And everyone's got their own advantages, disadvantages, you know, strengths and weaknesses. But she is just, just, just so different again, I guess. And and even more demanding in her own way <laughs> than, than, than her brother and sister. Um, you know, she wants to play. She wants to play Barbies and Play-Doh and all these imaginative games. And I was never good at them when I was younger. So, yeah, I, I'm always struggling to do that. But um, but she's glorious and she's got the most beautiful, compassionate personality. And I think she's learned a lot from, you know, her brother and sister and the things that, you know, we have to do. And she's just, yeah, she's 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 beautiful. So I hope she always has that that sense of compassion and and just this happiness that she always has. But I, I truly don't think that balance, complete balance is possible in a special needs family. I think that obviously the needs of your children who have those additional needs, they have to be met. You, you can't not meet them. And that has to come at a cost. It has to come at a cost of either time with your other children or time with yourself and your partner or, or your own time for you. So it's always in a way sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul, I guess, you know, in a lot of ways. But, you know, we've tried to be as fair as we can. You know, um, Ava, she loves ballet and she does gymnastics, so we do that. That's the, They're her things. You know, Charlotte has drama and scouts. Um, Xander, you know, does his therapies, and he's chosen not to do too much else because he prefers to stay at home. Um, but, yeah, we, we balance them out as best we can. But it's – you've and the kids, I suppose, have grown up knowing they can't just do everything they want, you know what I mean? Hopefully they've, they're growing up with a sense of – of being less centred on themselves and more thinking about others. That's the hope anyway. Um, but, yeah, the balance is really elusive and we've had we've had times where we haven't got it at all and it's gone all pear-shaped. <laughs> but we're doing what we can, yeah. You know, I think there was one week that I had six appointments in the one week, plus I was working, and, you know, it was ambitious. And I know, remember, it, I called it at the time sort of, you know, it was horror week, but it was the only time I could fit all these things in. Some of them had been long-standing appointments. And um, at the end of the sixth appointment, well, actually it was in the middle of it, I had a health issue. Uh, well, at the time we thought it might have been a mini stroke. Um, the left side of my face drooped, the left side of my body, I lost sensation and movement. I couldn't speak. Now, my son was with me and he has never been so scared in his life. We're at the dermatologist for his skin. They'd gone out to get a camera. So, of course, this happens when they're out of the room. They come back, and I and I'm, I couldn't even – I remember clearly trying to just say to Xander, get the door, get the door, and I couldn't I, – I was just moving my, my, my right arm sort of, but I couldn't actually get any words out. Um, 
and ended up going to hospital and had testing. And because I was 38 at the time and there was no risk factors, don't smoke, things like that, um, they think it was actually an atypical migraine rather than, than a stroke. But either way, it was stress-induced and that's when I knew that I couldn't continue on, you know, working part-time and, you know, and, and trying to do everything to the kids and keep the house going. Um, so later that year, you know, we had to take some, I took some time off. We took some stock. I took less, I was working less hours. I had a computer to bring home. That didn't help because I just worked more at home. Um, and in the end I sort of had to, you know, redundancies were on offer and I applied for one and I got one and I just knew that I had to, I, I just couldn't live that way anymore. And we'd always wanted to have someone at home. It's not fair. You know, and I know a lot of people don't have the choice. We're lucky we've had a choice to a point, but I would have rather have made that decision on my own terms rather than being forced into it because of because of, um, of ill health. And, like, I'll be on aspirin for the rest of my life. It's affected other medication I can take. And the worst of it is I've just always got this fear that if I get too stressed, it will happen again. Do you know what I mean? So, and my son took years. He, he will not go back. I can't take him back to that dermatologist. That is just... Completely, yeah, he is, it's ruined him. He, I remember him saying, Mummy, you're dead. You know, I mean, he was just so, he, he was just so, yeah, overwhelmed by the experience. And I, yeah, I've never been so scared. Yeah, and so I think in the end that's where you've got to look at it as a, as a positive and something like that. And with other things, you know, over the years I've been diagnosed with depression, with anxiety, with epilepsy and with celiac disease as well. So I've had, like most people do, their own health issues over the years as well. But you just have to... You sort of have to do what you can do and move forward because, yep, you could have a victim mentality or you could have the whole, oh, my God, you know, everything's going wrong, why do I bother? But I've got three kids that I can't just, I have to keep going for and um, and I also can't sit back and not do what I can for them because, again, the guilt <laughs> guilt is, is, is sort of part of my whole life. But, you know, I don't want to sit back. I don't want to be there at night thinking, oh, I should have done this today or I could have done more. I, so that's why I try and push myself to to give them opportunities, as many opportunities as I can because they've served them. I just want them to be happy. And I suppose what I've learned over the last few years and changing my own views on, on autism, you know, when you're first given a diagnosis, it's a disorder and there's things they're not doing they should be doing. And I suppose over the years with a lot of reading, I see now more, it's more, okay, they do things differently. So my hope for them is that they can make their mark in whatever they want to do. You know, if, if my son wants to go to university, great. You know, he, he tells me every day he wants to be an astronaut, um, a pipe organist, um, what else? Oh, there's, there's about five things, and they're all just completely just off the wall. But and if he can want to be any one of those things, that would be awesome. My daughter wants to be a preschool teacher, and that's great too. You know, I just want them to be happy, and I want them to be able to advocate for themselves. So that's the next challenge for us is to try and get them to, to recognise where they need help and to have the confidence to ask for it. Um, but essentially, yeah, I, I don't want them to feel limited um, and that's sort of what I'm what I'm trying to do, and that's why I'm trying to show them no limits now. They can do and attempt anything they want to do, um, but you know, we it, I just want it to be on their own terms. That brings us to the end of the Positive Partnerships podcast series. Thank you so much for joining us. We've really enjoyed meeting these wonderful families from around Australia, and we hope you have too. 